It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 222, The Writing on the Wall and the Capture of Babylon. The tables were overflowing with food, yet particular quantities of imported vegetables from Egypt and Persia were missing. But meat was in abundance, and there was extra quantities of local produce, and pork was apparently an endless supply. The Great Hall, built by Nebuchadnezzar, held tens of thousands, stretching the limits of our indoor spatial understanding. Great cedar columns rose every 20 feet, supporting the high ceilings, and upon each side of the columns protruding outward was a great torch sconce hurling flame into the air, lighting up the hall. Seated in the long tables was royal families, princesses, princes, magistrates, administrators, and magi to celebrate the king's confidence in their success as a nation and kingdom. And at the front of the hall was Nabonidus and his advisors and local governors. He was already intoxicated, and his slurred and arrogant language was nearly incomprehensible. Belshazzar, Nabonidus' son, was not only acting regent, but the current mouthpiece of the king. Belshazzar was in high spirits as well. And in their ignorance, the king and his staff and family chose to show their superiority to the Medes and Persians by celebrating themselves instead of fighting their enemy. My son, I'm enjoying this evening, the king said with surprising clarity. Can you think of anything else we can do to increase our gaiety? Belshazzar smiled and looked at his father. There's one thing, father. Grandfather always said we should never use the finest gold in the land. What gold is this, the king said? The gold of Ophir. We have gold of Ophir? Father, I've had a stomach problem for years. And I'd like to take my wine with the cups taken from the Hebrews in Jerusalem. They say healing comes through these cups, these goblets of gold. The gold of Ophir was used to make these cups and bowls. This is the same gold Solomon used to create his temple. Go, my son. The order was given and the servants were dispatched to the treasury to find everything of extreme value from the crates from Judah and to bring them forth. The crates containing serving bowls, ten giant candlesticks, a huge pure gold table, and silver goblets that were more pure than the king's goblets. They were brought and dispensed among the throng. Belshazzar stood up and with a roar saluted and worshipped and drank before the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. At the same time, the golden table of showbread and the lampstands were moved over to the walls. As he saluted his gods, the candlesticks were lit, and the sacred Hebrew jars were opened, and incense was burned over the table. Upon his declarations, a wind swept the hall, flickering the candles on the golden lampstand. The fear of the Lord fell upon their table in the entire hall. To the perceptive, the far side of the hall, was an outline of an apparition to be seen. The primary figure advanced, apparently flying towards a menorah 
or candlesticks in the pattern of the wind and the incense. His hand materialized to all in the hall. The moment it materialized, absolute terror fell upon the hall. Thousands upon thousands felt their hearts sink as if every deed of their heart was being weighed. An angel wearing a translucent blue cape, crowned with golden hair, emanated light from his being and terror from his presence, was supported by dozens of sentinels sent from the gates of heaven, each standing with a drawn sword at the end of the hall. The angel wrote with what appeared to be a human hand on the plaster wall four words. And as the hand wrote the first word, the only sounds in the building was the sounds of shock and terror. The king's wife screamed. A concubine spit out her food. Dozens of goblets and utensils were dropped upon the ground or on the tables, piercing the thick air with shrill sounds. Those around the king watched as the king's face went deathly pale. His son's face was fixed with his mouth wide open. The Marduk priest near the hand fell down as if they were dead. The second word was written, the third and fourth. Upon the fourth word, the hand disappeared. The lampstands were blown out, and no word was spoken for over 30 seconds. The lady near the king stood up, breaking the silence. My lord, she shouted, feeling something wet upon her feet. Her soiled shoes and the smell of urine revolted her. She turned around and looked under other tables, finding it commonplace. She was furious, but the king and his son did not notice. They only stared, emptied by the encounter, repeating themselves aloud. What does it mean? What does it mean? Generally, five years after Cyrus takes Lydia, his relations with Babylon crumble. And who knows who truly started the conflict? Maybe it was Cyrus himself or the imitation of the principalities of uh, Nabonidus to rebel against Babylon. Maybe it was just the impact of trade disputes or them just being neighbors too close to each other. Who knows? Maybe it was God himself who caused it to happen to give him the secret treasure hidden in deep places so that Cyrus would have his story and turn iron bars and gates. Call it prophetic destiny. Herodotus doesn't really give a reason for the war. It just starts. And we do know from history that Belshazzar, this is the, the son of Nabonidus, and he's pretty much the acting king, he starts to take idols from surrounding villages and pull them into Babylon. Now, we don't know if this was uh, to save the, the valuables from invasion, or if this was kind of a controlling mechanism of the local populace. Um, his father actually worshipped another god. And some historians actually uh, um, go so far as to say that potentially um, one of the weaknesses inside the Babylonian Empire was that Nabonidus worshipped a god that wasn't Marduk. And with this, there was a lot of civil unrest inviting Cyrus to invade. Um, that's just kind of speculation. 
most most historians just point to the fact that there's just the war breaks out. And then Herodotus, he just dives right into the war, and his account's pretty amazing. We do know that Cyrus marches his army south. Uh, he takes small towns and villages, um, and, and there's actually a conflict. So the, the Babylonian army goes out, um, and there's a con- there's an actual battle. Very little is known in history except that the Babylonians are d- soundly defeated by Cyrus and his army, and they withdraw inside the walls. Um, Cyrus is truly impacted by the sheer size and breadth of the fortifications of Babylon. And, you know, looking at the history books, I mean, they are extensive. The sheer size of the city overwhelms them, but Cyrus is a very bold man. Now, what Cyrus has on his side is that Babylon's, like, asleep. I mean, they're hiding behind their walls. This is not the empire that Nebuchadnezzar controlled. The siege of Babylon is covered from multiple angles in history, biblically and via historians. And we have two perspectives of this story, and they completely complement themselves perfectly. And when I taught biblical history three years ago to high school students, I love the telling of this story because we have the collision of the Bible and Josephus' antiquities, and then Herodotus' histories and many other works. And from Herodotus, we will pull the outside of the city walls military perspective, the Cyrus perspective. From the Bible, we see what goes on inside the walls all on the same day. Now, before Belshazzar has his great feast, which the Bible covers in Daniel chapter 5, we have to get Cyrus to the walls and start the, the siege of Babylon. Herodotus says Cyrus sees the impossibility of a normal siege, Yet he devises a plan. But it goes a further year back as he starts to invade uh, Babylon. Um, he crosses a river called the Gyges River. And there's something extremely peculiar that he does. But it's this act that he does that actually gives him the experience um, and the knowledge base to pull off the, the capture of Babylon. Here is Herodotus's account. On his march to Babylon, Cyrus came to the river Gyndes, which rises in the Matean Mountains and runs through the country of the Dardines and and then joins the Tigris, which passes the city of Opus and flows into the Persian Gulf. Cyrus was prepared to cross this river for which boats were needed, but one of his sacred right horses, a high-spirited creature, entered the water and attempted to swim across but was swept under by the rapid current and carried away. Cyrus was so furious with the river for daring to do such a thing that he swore he would punish it by making it so weak that even a woman could get over in a future without difficulty and without wetting her knees. He held up his march against Babylon, divided his army into two parts, marked out on each side of the river a hundred and eighty channels running off from it in various directions, and ordered his men to set out to work and dig. And having a vast number of hands employed, he managed to finish the job, but only at the cost of a whole summer wasted. Then having punished the Gyanese by splitting it into 360 separate channels, Cyrus, at the beginning of the following spring, resumed his march to Babylon. I mean, isn't that a crazy story? Like, he punished the river. It's going to become a Persian thing to punish rivers. Uh, we're going to see uh, Xerxes, I believe it's him, who actually whips 
uh, the sea when it, uh, a storm comes and destroys his fleet. Now, Herodotus says Cyrus sees the impossibility of a normal siege, yet he devises a plan. He turns his army into engineers, and they start to, uh, now that they come down to Babylon, he, he can't take it uh, by siege. He can't starve out the Babylonians. Um, there's things that he just can't do. Um, and he, because of this, this previous season, he diverted that river, uh, the Gandhis, by punishing it. Um, he actually taught his soldiers how to become, um, let's say, engineers. And this is what he ends up doing and, and how he goes after Babylon. He turns his army into engineers and they start to divert the Euphrates River, one tributary at a time. But there's actually a, a, a lake that there was um, off of the Euphrates where a previous engineering project had occurred, and he just wanted to divert the entire river into it. And he starts to divert the river. And now our perspective is going to change now. So we've got um, Nabonidus and Belshazzar um, are having this feast at, in Babylon. You've got Cyrus sieging the city, but Daniel is actually not invited to this feast until later. And I imagine Daniel, who has lost some favor with the current king, nothing on his part, just politics, or, or maybe he just wasn't invited. It was more about uh, family members and royalty. So I imagine Daniel watching the water level drop. He's alarmed, but he's excited about the showing up of the man of prophecy, Cyrus. Daniel prays as the water drops hour by hour and day by day. He knows the strategic nightmare that this was presenting itself, and he prayed earnestly. So let's cover Daniel's prophetic perspective as well. This is Daniel's prayer map, Isaiah 47. Go down, sit in the dust, virgin daughter Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, queen city of the Babylonians. No more will you be called tender or delicate. Take millstones and grind flour. Take off your veil. Lift up your skirts. Bare your legs and wide through the streams. Your nakedness will be exposed and your shame uncovered. I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. Now then, listen, you lover of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is none beside me. I will never be a widow or suffer the loss of children. Both of these will overtake you in a moment on a single day, loss of children and widowhood. They will come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and all your potent spells. You have trusted in your wickedness and have said no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge mislead you. When you say to yourself, I am and there is none beside me, disaster will come upon you and you will not know how to conjure it away. A calamity will fall upon you and you cannot ward off with a ransom. A catastrophe you cannot foresee will suddenly come upon you. Keep on then with your magic spells and with your many sorceries, which you have labored at since childhood. Perhaps you will succeed. Perhaps you will cause terror. All the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forth. Those stargazers who make predictions month by month, let them save you from what is coming upon you. Surely they are like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They cannot even save themselves from the power of the flame. Daniel has a pure heart, and he's learned many things that his countrymen in Israel didn't learn. Specifically, he learns that 
judgment prophecy is preventable. He learns judgment prophecy can be prevented. It's a call for a pure of heart worshiper of God to stand in the gap. His nationalism, his fervor, his religion actually became more pure in Babylon. It wasn't associated with the place as much as a lifestyle of faith. This removed a lot of preconceived notions that plagued leaders before him. He didn't fall into the holier-than-thou trap. Daniel's excited about Cyrus invading, but he's concerned about the transfer of power. Numerous prophecies state Babylon would be an utter ruin, and it would be destroyed. Daniel, who helped build Babylon, now housed potentially a hundred thousand of his countrymen. He didn't want a savage bloodbath in Cyrus's invasion. He didn't want a three-year siege leading to mass starvation. He prayed. He even prayed for the Babylonians because he learned to love them. You see, Daniel the intercessor even prayed for his city, though it was wicked. He prayed God would spare Babylon and not destroy it. He covered the city in prayer. If it must fall, let it be peaceable. He must have prayed. And this is the Daniel perspective, and it's such a lesson in intercession. It's a lesson of, of how to pray. Later when he prays for his people to return to, uh, to Jerusalem, the words that he prayed and the way he stood in the gap is almost shocking. And he wasn't invited to this party going inside the palace of Babylon. It's kind of good that he wasn't, so he could actually have a bigger perspective. And as the waters continued to recede of the Euphrates River, Daniel prays. Yet King Belshazzar, in his pride and arrogance, and that the Babylonian Empire was the greatest thing in the world that would never fall. No, no, his, his, his pride had actually put him to sleep. Instead of focusing on the siege, on the defense of his city, he holds a ball, a supper party, a feast for all of his officials. That's right. He, he has the feast of feasts. And he pulls together the greatest foods of his empire and invites all of his officials and the royal family to join him. And it's here where the biblical account takes over. Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While King Balthazar was drinking with his wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and concubines, might drink from them. So, that is what we just read. I mean, while a war was breaking out, while an army is parked outside the gates, the king throws a feast. In the midst of the feast, Belshazzar orders the gold and silver goblets taken from the temple of Jerusalem to be seized and taken, and to be drank from. The normal accoutrements and silverware were probably passed out as well, as well as the plates and the bowls and most likely the candlesticks too, used in and the incense for worship. And then Belshazzar praised his gods. Daniel 5, 3. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and concubines, drank from them. And they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. 
And this is where we have a shocker of shockers in the Bible about to come. A ghoulish scene was about to occur that terrifies Belshazzar. And part of the reason for this is that in the mix of the crates of the items in the temple, there's probably the anointed incense, and it doesn't say for sure, but there's probably the candles, and they even potentially light the actual lampstands that were in the literal temple. And when they take the items that were part of the religious ritual and turn them for demonic, selfish purposes, God has something to say, and he puts it in writing. Daniel 5, 5. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand and the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. So we don't know for sure if this was the hand of God himself. I mean, that would be amazing. And we don't know if it was an angelic hand that looks like a human hand. We just don't know. But we do know the reaction in the room. And this is where he actually slid in the fictional angelic uh, perspective at the beginning of the episode. And following this, the king was cut to the heart. The hand on the wall must have also coincided with that heavy, intense fear of the Lord which landed on the doomed king's heart. Daniel 5, 7. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, anointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, slight variation in the name, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and to solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him all the same things. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king, and I will tell him what it means. Daniel doesn't want his rewards or his promotion, especially become the third in the kingdom, because he knows what this message means. Daniel 5.18 Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. And those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He was living with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. 
you have had the godnets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines, drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you do not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Meanie, meanie, tekel, parson. Here is what these words mean. Meanie, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on scales and found wanting. Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So Daniel 5 nearly concludes with this event, but there's one more line, which is just so verbose. Daniel 5.30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. In this case, the Bible totally makes you dig to find the rest of the history. It's the biblical point of view. Fiction writers call it POV. It's the view of the people inside Babylon. The enormous walls that surrounded Babylon are secure. The walls around the city, the gates and the bars and the gates and the water gates, all that, it's just secure. And this is a point of view inside the walls. But what if the water level drops? 20 feet. Picture an arched gateway with a hanging iron gate from the archway to the water level. It would protrude into the water level 5 to 10 feet for safety purposes, right? You know, high, low tide, you know, whatever. And, and well, imagine what's going on now, though. What does those gates look like now that the water level's dropped 20-plus feet? And much of the length of the Euphrates was now fordable for any army to cross. And Herodotus actually tells something interesting. He's like, he makes this statement that if the Babylonians were paying attention and they were actually defending their city, when Cyrus goes through under this kind of like, we call it floodplain, you know, where the river used to be, they would actually be sitting ducks for the Babylonians to hurl stones and spears and arrows at them. But they weren't paying attention. And because they weren't, Cyrus snuck right in. Doesn't it have another familiar ring to it? Another fulfilled prophecy about Cyrus. Isaiah 44, 27. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Belshazzar was lazy. He was arrogant and prideful. His grandfather Nebuchadnezzar, though they call him his father in some accounts, is his grandfather, he would have marched out to fight Cyrus in force. And he would have defended his city, even if he lost that first battle. But um, most likely, if, if he was alive and they would have fought, it would have been an unbelievable amount of carnage and destruction and loss of life. Probably a stalemate with no victor would have been the outcome. Belshazzar just allowed Cyrus to march his army under the gates and bars and the river gates and seize the city almost bloodlessly. Cyrus, the king of the Persians, 
conqueror of the Medes and Lydians, has now conquered Babylon. And he owns the largest single land mass of any man to ever rule the earth up to this date. The largest empire to date was now controlled by Cyrus, and he clearly earns the moniker of Cyrus the Great. Something about him strikes me. It's his boldness. He was a bold man. He seized every opportunity afforded him, or he created opportunities with his boldness of decision. And our story of Daniel doesn't end. I mean, um, we don't know exactly how this goes down, but I, I picture Cyrus being brought in, Belshazzar, Nabonidus, um, all the royal family. And um, from the sounds of it, he actually executes uh, Belshazzar. And I picture him getting in Daniel's face and just saying, will you serve me? And, uh, and I picture Daniel seeing a man worthy of serving, this Cyrus, a man you've been praying for for dozens of years. And that's just what will happen. Um, Daniel will actually be um, called upon by Cyrus, and he'll actually move up north um, to his capital. He'll be in Persepolis, he'll be in Susa, he'll be in different areas uh, and Daniel will now serve Cyrus. And, and if, if Daniel didn't have enough excitement in Nebuchadnezzar's court, there's more to come with Cyrus. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.